0: Please turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, we'll begin reading in verse 15. This is God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, the great gift that it is to us and the understanding that you grant to us as a result of your revealed will in Scripture. Would you open our eyes now to see it, to understand it, to grow from it, Lord, to convict us of sin, to even draw those to saving faith that you would. Lord, your word is mighty and powerful. You've promised that it will not return void. And so we come to it now in faith. And we ask you to do your work through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There are some days that are better than others. Some days when seemingly everything goes wrong. This is not a part of the sermon I'm just reflecting on today. It seems like everything has gone wrong this morning, most of which you don't know about. Uh, But God is faithful. And here we are. We've made it thus far and we will continue on thanks for your patience. Um, it was just a, a minor, and I knew it when I did it. When I flipped the switch, I knew what was going to happen before I turned the sound down, so I apologize for the ringing that still may be in your ears as a result of that. Lesson learned. Well, when Leslie and I were first married, uh, we had the chance to buy a friend's car, and after we bought it, we needed to sell Leslie's car, and so I listed it in a newspaper to sell You remember what those are? You used to get them and then you had the little wanted ads in the back. So I put it in the newspaper and uh, we got a call. Somebody was interested, so we ar- arranged to have them see it. And they came and they looked at it and they decided that they wanted to buy it. Now, normally in selling a car, I would have insisted on a bank check or cash or something like this. But I kind of got to know this couple. They were a sweet older couple. They seemed trustworthy. And so when they asked if they could write a personal check... Yeah, you know where this is going. I accepted. The whole way home, that whole evening, dread began to fall on me. What had I, what had I done? And the next morning, as I drove to the bank, I began thinking, this is just not going to go well. This was a big mistake. Well, I got to the bank and I walked up to the teller to deposit the check. And when I gave it to her, She began typing and looking at the screen and typing and looking at the screen, and then she dismissed herself to go talk to another teller. They came over. They both looked at the screen and typed some more and looked at me and looked at the screen, and then they dismissed themselves to go talk to the branch manager. And it was this point when I'm standing there at the counter, and you know how the banks are set up with the big glass windows. You can see everything. And I'm looking at these three ladies in this office talking about me, looking at me, talking with each other, back and forth. I knew something was up. Well, the teller came back out, and she instructed me to step out of the line and stand over by the wall. And it was at this point that I knew something was seriously wrong. It wasn't just a clerical error, and it was possibly worse than a bad check. As I stood there, I watched them make phone calls, the branch manager from her office, and I began to imagine who they were calling. The local sheriff's department, of course. And I began playing in my mind this whole scenario. Headline appears, local youth pastor arrested for check fraud or theft, Never again would I be able to serve in ministry. My reputation would be gone. I'm standing there for what seemed like an eternity, sweat, panic, questions surrounding my thoughts of what in the world. Well, the teller eventually came back to the counter. She called me up and she told me that the owners of the checking account from which that check had come had reported their checkbook stolen. It had taken them some time to reach them, and in the course of that time, they hadn't had called the local sheriff's office. Uh, but they eventually got a hold of the owners of the checking account, and they subsequently instructed them that, "Oh yeah, we found our checkbook. We forgot to tell you." And then they used a check from that checkbook to buy the car for me. So the teller said, "Hey, everything's okay." Uh, Is there anything else I can do for you today? Thank you for being a customer. You know how that goes. And I'm shaking the whole way home as I drove back. Even though nothing horrible happened to me that day, in my mind, I was convinced that my life at 25 years of age was over because of the potentially terrible things that were happening in front of me, even though none of them happened. And Joseph's brothers find themselves in a similar situation, except in their case, they were actually guilty of sinning against Joseph. They were guilty of harming him. But the guilt, what that developed in their minds with the death of their father is that they began to create these terrible things that were going to happen to them. And so they had to come up with a plan to save themselves So they concocted a story, and they eventually came to Joseph with it. They threw themselves down before him, said, we'll be your servants. All of this because of what they feared might happen. How easy it is for us to create incredible doom in our own minds, even before anything goes awry. Well, today is the final sermon in our series in Genesis. And in this passage, we see these two accounts. The first... The more well-known of the passage, uh, this is where Joseph says to his brothers that statement that most of us have heard many times, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You might think that that's where we would focus today, but I want to focus actually on the second part. We'll look at both, but I want to focus our attention more on the second part. The second part records Joseph's death and his final words to his family. I looked back and we began our study in Genesis on March 8th. Not of this year, but of last year, 2019. That means it's taken us a year, nine months, and almost 70 sermons to get through Genesis. I don't know if that's good or bad or somewhere in between, but that is what it is. We started with creation. We moved on to the fall. We saw the covenant of promise given to the patriarchs. And all the while, we see our God, who is faithful, working to accomplish His good and sovereign will. Yes, sin wrecked the world, it broke relationships, it separated man from his creator, but God in his mercy pursues man in his great love. We saw this with Adam and Eve after the fall. God pursued them, he sought them, he covered them. And in the face of abounding wickedness in the earth, God pursued Noah and he saved him and his family. And God pursued Abraham, he pursued Isaac, pursued Jacob, in spite of their wonderings, in spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion. The promise that we saw that God gave in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death, is the promise that is on the lips of Joseph in his final moments when he says, God will surely visit you. God will surely visit you. The Redeemer would come. The Deliverer would arrive. God would send a Savior who would fulfill for men and women what they couldn't do for themselves. Salvation is coming. And so as we begin looking in verse 15, we see that this is the brothers' response to their father's death. Up until this point, the narrator has shown us only Joseph's perspective. Now we get to see what the brothers are thinking. And when you first read it, at least to me, it was a little surprising to see them react this way. I mean... You remember when Joseph revealed his identity to them that he reassured them. He said, you know, everything's okay. In essence, he said a paraphrase of what he says in this passage. Let me read it to you. In Genesis 45, he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then a little later, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And we saw in this the, the sovereignty of God over all matters that what his brothers intended for evil, God had worked for good. But we can cut them a little slack because that had to be a pretty stressful moment. You know, did they really hear everything Joseph said? Uh, you know, this was, this was a huge shock. They had come to the man. Remember how they referred to him as the man each time they came back and forth? They referred to him as that. They'd come before him many times. They hadn't recognized it was their brother. And so when he says through tears, it's Joseph, it's me, that there was this incredible shock. Not only that, but nearly two decades has passed. Almost 20 years have passed. And so certainly we can understand while now with the death of Jacob, that they might begin to think through all the terrible things that could happen to them. The brothers are still feeling their guilt. And often what happens when we feel guilty? Well, we often accuse other people, don't we? I'm not saying we do it all the time, but it often is the case. When we falsely accuse others, it, it often reveals what's in our own hearts. When we think the worst of others, especially when we do it without merit... It reveals what we would do. In essence, Joseph's brothers were fearful because had they been in Joseph's shoes, they would have sought retaliation. And so the brothers fabricate this story about something their father is never noted as saying. Now, the narrator doesn't tell us that this is a fabrication, but all of the evidence points to this. In other words, there's no evidence to support that Jacob ever said these things to Joseph. In fact, I think it would be arguably easier to believe that had Jacob been concerned about this, Jacob would have said it directly to Joseph. Jacob was lucid. He was strong in mind and in faith up until his last breath. You remember the things that he said to his sons. If he had been concerned, and you remember the relationship that he had with Joseph, if he had been concerned about Joseph that in some way he hadn't forgiven his brothers, he would have said to him, forgive them. So the story that the brothers make up is, I mean, you you, kind of see it for what it is. It's just a made-up story. And this explains, too, why Joseph reacts the way that he does. Why does he start crying? Why does he weep when his brothers begin telling him the story? Well, because he knows it's not true. He, He can see through their efforts that they've made this up. But he also weeps because he knows that he has forgiven them. They haven't believed it. He knows that he's not holding on into any rage or malice or bitterness. And so it literally broke his heart to hear his brothers say, in essence, we don't think you've really forgiven us. After they said this to him, they fell down before him and said in verse 18, behold, we are your servants. They, in essence, were saying, we'll be your slaves. They're trying with everything they can think of to, in a sense, save themselves From something that's not even threatening them. How their minds have played tricks on them. You remember what set the brothers off so many years ago. It started with that special coat that that his father gave him. But it was really the dreams that Joseph had that made them so mad. You remember in the dreams that the brothers were depicted as bowing down to Joseph. And listen to what they said to to him back then in Genesis thirty seven eight. Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They hated him for his dreams, but they hated him for the fact that he told them his dreams, his words. And we talked about the fact that at seventeen years old, yeah, Joseph might have been a little snooty about it. You know, we don't we don't know for sure, but he might have had a little bit of an attitude about it. And so his brothers, they they hated him. And we saw what they did to him, of course, and we know the life of Joseph. But Joseph had forgiven them. He had said that to them. Don't be angry at yourselves. God intended it for good. And he had demonstrated that through the way that he cared for them. There's no evidence that Joseph had done anything but good to his brothers since they came to Egypt. And yet they still struggled to believe it. But let's not look down on the brothers because we do the same thing, don't we? When it comes to God's forgiveness, do we not struggle as well to believe it? Every time we fall, we think God is going to get us like some, remember the old whack-a-mole game in the arcades? Isn't that kind of how we picture it? But it's in these times that we have to fight for faith by looking to the cross. And as we look to the cross, we see that God did not spare His own Son but gave him up as a ransom for you and for me to forgive us of our sins. The cross shows us the genuineness and the completeness of the forgiveness that we have received and and that Christ has delivered us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. First John 1.9, our sins, all of our sins, or as the song that we sing, our sins not in part, but the whole have been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And so we have to fight to remind ourselves, to believe, to trust that in Christ all of our sins have been forgiven. Well, Joseph responds to his brothers with these incredible words of comfort and assurance. He repeats the phrase, do not fear twice, to, to, to really emphasize that his brothers have nothing to be afraid of. And he says to them three things. Look in verse 19. He questions with this rhetorical question. He's in in essence saying in verse 19, I'm not God. In verse 20, God worked it for good. What you intended for evil, God meant it for good. He accomplished it for good. And then in verse 21, I will continue to care for you. Three things. I'm not God. God worked it for good. And I will continue to care for you. Derek Kidner summarizes these three things this way. I'm not God, he says, leave all writing of one's wrongs to God. Does that sound familiar? Leave all writing of one's wrongs to God. Number two, see God's providence in man's malice. God worked it for good. See God's providence in man's malice, even the evil things. You know, we like to think of God's providence in the good things. That's where it's easy. God has blessed us. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? But what about calamity? What about difficulty? What about suffering? And then third, repay evil with forgiveness as well as practical affection. The reason these things might sound familiar is we know verses that say these things. We look in Scripture and we see each of these ideas. For example, Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave all of your writings or wrongs, writings to God. He is God, we are not. This is in essence what Joseph said to his brothers. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. You intend it for evil, God meant it for good. Finally, the words of Jesus in Luke 6.27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. When we're sinned against, how do we retaliate, return evil with forgiveness and practical affection? An additional way that we could paraphrase what Joseph said to his brothers is this. God is God, not me. He's the Redeemer. He will right all wrongs and I will continue to trust him and obey him. You see, what Joseph was saying to his brothers was in essence a summary of the gospel. Do you hear it? Who God is, what he has done for us in redemption, and trusting and obeying him. Very simply, that's what it is. We come to God believing who he is. We trust him in his redemptive work in our place, and we rest in the sufficiency of that work alone. Verse 21 then says, Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph, in essence, spoke of gospel hope to his brothers. He wasn't just patting them on the head. He didn't just say random things. These very things point us. The narrator describes them as comfort and kindness. They point us to the hope of the gospel. This is an example of how to apply the gospel in our lives. You know, we use that phrase a lot of times, apply the gospel in your life or apply the gospel to this or that. You may wonder, as I often did, how do you do that? (laughs) How do you apply the gospel? This is an example of how to do that. We're called to apply the gospel, in essence, to all things in life and how we respond. In other words, we're called to believe the gospel, to hold on to the gospel, to put the gospel, look through gospel lenses at whatever is happening in our lives. The major stuff, the minor stuff, and we do this by these three things that Joseph highlights here. We acknowledge God for who he is. God, you're God, I'm not. You know all. You are Savior. You are Lord. You are Sovereign. You are my Redeemer, and you, my forgiveness of sins is found. We acknowledge God for who He is. Secondly, we trust Him completely to be faithful as He always has, has been, working all things together for good for those who love Him. And third, in faith we walk in obedience according to His revealed will in Scripture. Right? We're not we're not static. We don't, we don't stop short of obedience. The obedience doesn't merit anything, but the obedience is the fruit that comes from genuine faith. And Joseph demonstrates this, right? He's not just saying these things to his brother, brothers, but he's saying, I'm going to continue to care for you. I'm going to continue to look after you. So we do this. We do this with the minor things in our lives. You have an argument with your spouse, you fail an exam in school, or you wake up to a dead car battery. How do you respond to those things? Typically, we respond with anger or anxiety. Those are broad generalizations, but isn't that kind of where we go? The battery's dead, we're angry, we fail the exam in school, we're full of anxiety. Argument with a spouse, well, that can sum up both categories, can it? And what do we do in those moments? When anxiety and fear dominate us, we typically end up sinning, don't we? We sin in our anger. We sin in our fear. Uh, if, if, if it involves a relationship with somebody, we usually sin with our words, our actions. When fear and anxiety, or, or anxiety rather and anger dominate us, that's where we go. But think about what happens when we apply the gospel. In those moments when we remind ourselves that God is who he is, We trust Him to be faithful as He always has been. And then in faith, we walk in obedience according to His revealed will in Scripture. It transforms how we respond to those things that are seemingly minor. But it's the daily stuff. It's the stuff that we're up against every day of our lives. That's what it looks like to apply the gospel. And so then when we face the major stuff in life, the life-altering diagnosis, the job loss, the loss of a loved one, then... We've learned to apply the gospel in the little things and it becomes easier in the major things. Now, I'm not saying, you know me, I don't like formulas. I don't think the gospel is a formula. I'm not trying to give you a formula here. But I do think there are practical ways that we can understand of how to apply the gospel. This is one of them. We see it here in Joseph. But this isn't some kind of band-aid. Applying the gospel is is this, it isn't a -a once-a-day thing. It's not a once certainly not a once in a lifetime thing. That's usually how we treat our salvation. We think applying the gospel is trusting Jesus and maybe walking an aisle or praying a prayer or having some kind of experience. But applying the gospel is a moment by moment way that we are to live our lives. Fighting for faith. Because as soon as we leave these doors, in this moment right now, it's we're not most of us are not fighting these battles. But the minute we leave these front doors, the battles begin. The battles for our faith and the opportunities for fear and anxiety erupt. And we have to remind ourselves, God is who he says he is. He knows everything. He's sovereign. He's good. He's promised good to me. He has redeemed me. He's called me my name. I am his. I belong to him. I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. We go through all of who he is. And then we remind ourselves of his faithfulness. We look back. Maybe it's through the story of Genesis. Maybe it's through other passages of Scripture. We see that every time He promises it, He does it. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. We know that He works all things together for good. And then we go from that in faith by obeying Him. What does His word say to me? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. think that would apply in in an argument with your spouse? If you took that and applied that? What about be thankful in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you? I know the plans that I have for you. I mean, think of all of the good promises, all of the commands in Scripture that God has given us and how those apply in these both minor ways and major ways that we struggle and suffer in life. I can tell you that from my study of God's Word, I can tell you that from listening to saints who have walked with Jesus longer than I have, And even from my own experience, that when we learn to do this, applying the gospel with the minor stuff, then it becomes easier to do so when we face the major stuff. It's still a battle. It's still a fight. I used to think, and I've told you guys this before, I used to think when I was younger, I looked at saints who were older, and I thought, oh, when I get there, it's just a plateau, right? They figured it all out. They know it all. And when I get to that stage of life, I'll just coast. It'll be easy. But we all know that's not true. That the fight for faith is a continual labor. That the moment the Lord teaches us something about our hearts and and he gives us conquering power over that sin, the next moment he's lifting another layer of the onion, isn't he? Showing us something that's even deeper. And so we have to work and fight and labor to apply the gospel in our experiences in life. We need to be a people who continually run to and cling to and rest in the hope of the gospel that is ours in Jesus Christ. And when we fail to do so, because we will, (laughs) we will, we're sinners, then we come back to and do the same thing. In our sin, we apply the gospel, who God is. He's our Redeemer. He has forgiven us. We trust in His faithfulness. Nothing can separate us from His love and we walk in faith as we obey him. Why? Because he loves us. Applying the gospel, applying the gospel. And so may we be a people then who not only do this, but may we be a people who also, as Joseph, comfort his brothers, speaking words of kindness to them. May we be a people who do that with each other. That as we walk through this life, that we're able to speak gospel hope to each other, that we're able to lift one another up, to shoulder each other's burdens, to grieve with those who grieve, to rejoice with those who rejoice, pointing each other to the hope that is ours in Jesus. Well, in verse 22, we see the final words of Genesis capturing Joseph's last words in his death. Verse 22 tells us he lived to be 110 years old, good old age. This was you know, not too long, not too short. It was kind of just right. This was the prime age at this point in history. Uh, he saw his grandchildren. He saw his great-grandchildren. Uh, this is a sign of true blessing. Proverbs seventeen six says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And if you have watched people become grandparents, you know what this means. They turn into total suckers, don't they? There's just this incredible joy of becoming a grandparent. And I often would say when my kids were younger to my parents, who are you? (laughs) Um, This was the blessing that Joseph received. And I would say that this was a greater blessing to him than even the rank and the privilege and the wealth and all that he had received from the hand of God while he was in Egypt. Joseph had lived in Egypt for 93 years of his life. Most of that time, he was second only to Pharaoh. He was as high as you could get, in essence, with all that comes with it. God's grace had been poured out in his lives in, in countless ways. He had been delivered from harm. He had been rescued and he had been lifted up. And through him, God had provided deliverance for so many people. And now in his last moments, he is demonstrating the faith that has carried him through his life and the thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for him. Verse 24 captures his final words. He says to his family, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you remember when Jacob was uttering his final words to his family, what he was doing? Remember, he was pointing them to the hope of the gospel, pointing them to the fact that God would keep his promises, that he would deliver them. He wanted their faith to be strong. It's what every parent and grandparent and great-grandparent wants when they come to the end of their life, that their children and grandchildren and so forth would have a faith that is their own. And so here we see Joseph doing the same thing. He says to them, God will visit you. And then he repeats it in verse 25. God will surely visit you. And this is what I want us to see. This, this phrase, God will visit you, is translated differently in different passages. Uh, in, one, in one passage, it's translated to watch over. In another place, it's translated concerned about. It is the idea of more than just somebody knocking on your door saying, hi, I'm here. The idea of God, what Joseph's communicating here is that God would redeem them. God would come to their aid. And as with any prophecy, it has multiple layers. The immediate fulfillment of this would, of course, be the exodus when God rescues his people out of the house of bondage. Now, I say immediate. It's going to be 400 years from now. But at this point, uh, the, the, the family's not in bondage, right? So this promise is going to become more precious to them as time goes on, particularly after this Pharaoh dies and their circumstances change. This promise would be especially precious to them. After the Exodus, when God gave his people the Ten Commandments, he opened it with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God did what he promised that he would do. That promise that he had given, remember, to to, to Abraham back in Genesis 15 when he said, you will be sojourners and slaves in the land for 400 years, but I will deliver you from that land, right? All the way back to Genesis 15, Joseph is, in essence, now repeating that. And we see in the Exodus following that in in the giving of the Ten Commandments, that statement that God did what he said he was going to do. And now every time we read the Ten Commandments and people of God throughout the ages are reminded of the faithfulness of God when we read this passage. But of course, like any prophecy, there's another layer. There's a layer further down the line, and you know where this is going, that the ultimate salvation that this is pointing to goes all the way back to the promise given in Genesis 3.15, the promise that every redemptive promise since then has echoed. You see, God will surely visit you is the hope of Emmanuel. God will surely visit you speaks to the fact that that God would come and dwell among you. It's what the tabernacle promised. It's what the the kingdom promised. It's what everything that has that redemptive nature to it pointed to that is fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. I didn't plan this. In God's good providence, he has worked it out that on this day, we would finish Genesis as we enter into Advent next week. And I'm thankful for that because this sets us up. The last words on Joseph's lips before he dies is, God will visit you. Surely, God will visit you. And now we step into this Advent season, a season that we remember and reflect and worship with anticipation the coming of the promised one, the one who would deliver his people. In Matthew's gospel, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he had considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the fulfillment of Joseph's words, God will surely visit you. He came in accordance with this promise to save his people from their sins by crushing the head of the serpent, by defeating sin and death. Genesis is the story of beginnings. It's the story of how everything started. And we see from the very beginning God's plan unfold. It is a plan of redemption. And that what we call the scarlet thread that runs from Genesis 3.15, that first utterance of the promise of redemption runs all the way to Scripture and comes to the life of Jesus. And so now the closing words of this book point us to that hope as we enter into Advent. Just as the people of Israel were waiting the promised deliverance from Egypt, the anticipation wasn't even built up yet. Their life was pretty good at this point in Egypt. But soon the Pharaoh would die. He would forget all of the good that Joseph and his family had done, and he would enslave them, and they would long even more to be delivered. But in the same way, you and I also are waiting our own ultimate deliverance and return to Eden to the real promised land, to the new heavens and the new earth. In the expectancy that they had, which was ultimately satisfied in our God, or by our God, rather, we see in Zechariah's words in Luke 1. Listen to what Zechariah says. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. All of this points to the same God that we've seen throughout Genesis, the one who is faithful, the one who does all that he says he will do. And so now, as we enter into this season of Advent with expectancy, may we fix our eyes on this one who has been faithful all along and will be faithful to each of us in our lives. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as the words of Genesis echo in our ears, as we think about all that we've seen and learned. About who you are. May these words. Bring us incredible comfort. He will surely visit you. As we know not only this points to the promise of. Your first visit in which you fulfilled that. And you accomplished our salvation. That there is yet to come another visit. A return. A final visit when all will be made right when the consummation of the kingdom is finally at hand, when our faith is made sight, when we will be delivered not only from the penalty of sin, but we will know no longer the presence of sin. Lord, we long for that day. We long for your return. And so as we enter into the season of Advent, when we remember and we worship with anticipation your first coming, Lord, remind us of the great hope that is to be found in your return. And strengthen our hearts by this, that we will know that you are trustworthy. Help us to apply gospel truth in our lives, knowing who you are, knowing that you're faithful, and walking in response to that in faith and obedience. Do this in our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.